This is Steve Kim. Andy Steiger. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you speak the language of our culture and address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. Hey, everybody. This is the first episode where it's me and Andy, but without Terry. That's kind of sad. It is. It is sad. We we missed you, Terry. If you, if listeners, if you haven't heard, Terry has moved on. He's looking at moving on since January. He's uh, been looking for full time work. Uh, he wasn't with us full time uh, here at Apologetics Canada, and uh, so we understand and uh, we'll miss him. He joins uh, a list of other great people who have been a part of the podcast. I think of John Morrison, Chris Battle, and Terry Crosby. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll just jump right into things because we have a lot to talk about and a short time to do it. So, if you listeners have been living under a rock, maybe you haven't heard this name, George Floyd. So, if you actually are not aware of what's going on, back in May 20th, Minneapolis Police Department received a call for forgery in progress, which means somebody was allegedly trying to use this counterfeit bill. And so the police were called in and the police encountered George Floyd. Now, I don't know about you, Andy, but I saw the uh, eyewitness video and it was actually really hard to watch. The video starts off with the police officer, Derek Chauvin, kneeling on the neck of George Floyd. And the video is about eight, nine minutes long. And you see George Floyd struggling, saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And these onlookers are protesting, hey, this is unnecessary, so on and so forth. But Derek Chauvin kept his knee on the neck of George Floyd. About halfway through the video, you see George Floyd being unresponsive. And at the end, you see the paramedics come and take him away. And just watching the video really tied my stomach in a knot. And I was deeply disturbed by it. What about you? What was your reaction? Like you, Steve, uh, when I saw the video, you know, you're like, man, I cannot believe uh, what I'm seeing. And more than that, it's I can't believe what I'm seeing yet again. Mm. And that I think that was the part that I just found incredibly frustrating because you know you see these videos and you're you're expecting there to be some bigger story like this was an armed robbery or you know something like this but I mean <laughs> this was about a, a fake twenty dollar bill mm-hmm. right now I did see another video interestingly enough that shows the beginning of the arrest and then they take George Floyd across the street. And then that's where everything kind of erupts. It looks like they had put him in the car and then he he got out or, or whatever. But I think this is the important point to think about is no matter what even the backstory is, this question of was that necessary? Was it necessary to keep your knee on this poor guy's neck, you know, while he's telling you he can't breathe? And then what was it about halfway through he he's unconscious and the police officer remains there now i i was talking to some police officer friends of mine about this video mm-hmm. and they as well are just completely dumbfounded going i yeah the, this is completely unnecessary and that this is uh, an abuse of power and it was interesting at least here in canada the way that the police operate is they have this saying cuffs on cops off 
So, police officer putting a knee on a person's neck or head, that can happen. Particularly, perhaps somebody's having a psychotic breakdown or somebody is is on drugs, right? Sometimes they have to, you know, have a number of police officers on an individual to get restraints on them. Mm-hmm. But then once that's accomplished, you come off of the individual. And what was particularly disturbing for me as I was watching it was as they were being filmed, they seemed to have this sort of devil-may-care attitude. And everybody's saying, hey, this is unnecessary. He's not responsive. What are you doing? Are you proud of yourself? And they just didn't care. At least what appeared to be that sort of devil-may-care attitude really disturbed me deeply, that here is a man whose life is about to end, and eventually did end, and they just didn't seem to care. That really broke my heart watching that. Absolutely. And and Steve, did you not too like have this kind of sense as you're watching it? Do these police officers, are they that culturally ignorant? Mm, Do they not yeah. see what's going on? Do they have they not seen just the number of different things that have taken place in the black community over the last little while? I mean, it's not like this was years ago. These were days ago. We've had issue after issue. And you're thinking, if for no other reason, if if you don't even respect this individual, if for no other reason you would think, just given the cultural climate of what's going on. Maybe you shouldn't treat this person that way. I mean, to me, it just shows a complete lack of respect for a human being and cultural sensitivity of what's going on. Right. So, the senior officer, Derek Chauvin, he was charged with second-degree murder, manslaughter, and the other officers were charged with aiding and abetting second-degree murder. That's right. And so, it is seen that, you know, they clearly have the obligation to intervene, but they didn't. It reminds me of a parallel between what happened in World War II with Nazi Germany, right? That those who participated in, like, were officers such as in Auschwitz and, and elsewhere, right? They were held accountable right, for what took place in that it was argued that they had a responsibility to oppose it. So, it's, so it's interesting isn't it? Our secular culture will pay lip service to relativism and to this idea that, you know, there's no objective moral value or, or whatever. But it, when it comes to these circumstances, right, when the rubber hits the road, that is absolutely not the yeah. case. The significance of this event is that now there are these protests that are happening, not just in the United States, but in Canada and around the globe. And in many cases, this is turning very violent. And in the United States, especially, there have been rioting and looting going on, um, which ironically actually really impacted people who are persons of color who own the businesses. Their businesses are getting wrecked. And so I've seen many a video of black people shouting at the rioters saying like what are you guys doing right like you claim to stand up for me and yet here you are right so this is spreading really wildly and you mentioned yesterday as we were talking about this too that things are happening in belgium with king leopold ii well what was that all about yeah, it's, it's fascinating with this rioting that's taking place in the united states that it's spilling out into Canada and countries uh, around the world, particularly in Europe. 
And one of the things that it's just bringing to light is racism. And really, I mean, as I've been watching all this unfold, the thing I just can't help but think, especially from a Christian perspective, is that what we're seeing on display here is the brokenness of humanity. We're seeing sin, again, not just in the United States, but around the world, and in particular places like Belgium. This is an issue that I write about actually in the my book that's coming out. Shameless uh, plug. <laughs> shameless plug, but I think it's so fascinating. I mm-hmm. went to Belgium and I saw the statue. Interestingly enough, when I went to the statue, I pulled out my camera and started to take a picture of King Leopold. And a Belgium woman about 30 years of age came up to me and said, are you sure you want a picture of that man? Do you know who you're taking a picture of? And in fact, I did know who I was taking a picture of, but I thought it was interesting that there's just a level of shame in Belgium over this individual. And, and this is true elsewhere in the world of you know statues of individuals who have come to represent racism, and in particular, such as King Leopold, he was responsible for the death of some 10 million Congolese. King Leopold privately owned the Congo, but Belgium benefited. That's the dialogue that's happening in Belgium right now. It's like, yeah, I know you want to take that statue down, but you realize that a lot of our wealth came from what he did in the Congo, and that this is a this is sadly a part of our history that we just can't sweep under the rug. And so it's this weird issue, right? Like what do you do with these statues that become this sour reminder of the racism that you've prospered from? It's the same thing with racism. How how do you get rid of racism? Well, you can't pretend like it didn't happen or isn't still happening. I think it's one of those things that we've got to come to terms with. And it's interesting. It's one of the reasons why in my book, I, I talk a lot about the history of what's happened because I, I really don't think we can appreciate what we're experiencing unless we come to terms with what took place. Racism is definitely becoming front and center through all of this, right? I mean, there are some discussions around whether what Derek Chauvin did was motivated by racism and things like that. But whatever the case, this happened in the context of this racial tension in America. And this clearly gave the spark that it needed for this wildfire to spread. As for me, my thinking is, okay, I think there really is racism. I mean, that's undeniable. In fact, I was listening to this one lecture. One of the things that he brought up was this YouGov poll where people were asked, do you think interracial marriage is morally wrong? Whether it should be legal or not, that's not the question. Do you think it's morally wrong? Interracial marriage, that is. 28% of Republicans answered yes, it is morally wrong. I mean, that means 72%, the great majority, is saying, no, it's not morally wrong, right? But 28% is still saying, whether it should be legal or not, it's morally wrong. Um, The Democrats aren't immune either, right? 12% of them say interracial marriage is morally wrong. So so we were actually talking about this over around the dinner table last night between Sharina and me. And for those listeners who don't know, my wife is Caucasian. I'm Asian. And so... We happened to be talking about this and we had to explain to our kids, six and four years old, that some people really do believe what we have around this table here is morally wrong, right? So clearly there is racism going on here. Having said that, 
I recognize that I myself can sometimes read racism into places where there isn't one. And so I think it happens on both sides. There, there, there really is racism, but it also doesn't help that I read racism into places where there isn't one. So, for example, I mentioned this in a previous podcast years ago. When I first came to Canada, I had this very racist notion of white people, black people, because all the exposure I had to the Western world at that point was just Hollywood. So you can see that I'm not getting a very accurate picture of the Western world, especially in in America, right? So I came to Canada with this preconceived notion that white people are supremacists and black people are thugs, period. And so then what happened was anytime a white kid did anything mean to me, I interpreted it as a racist thing. But then later I saw the same kid doing the same thing to other kids that are white or whatever, right? So that's when I realized, oh, wait a minute, he's just being a jerk, right? He's not necessarily being a racist. Um, And so that's when I realized, okay, I have to be careful. I mean, yes, there is racism, but it doesn't help if I read racism into places where there isn't one, right? It just only makes the problem worse. You probably have a bit of a different perspective on it than I am. But I'm curious what you think. Well, here here's a couple thoughts that, that have been racing around in my mind. Ha, the ha, first, ha. <laughs> <laughs> the the first is if George Floyd was a white man, what that police officer did would still be wrong. Mm-hmm. This is a human issue, and this is about abuse of power and how you should and should not treat human beings. And the part that I get so frustrated and I think many of us get so frustrated about is we have seen over and over again, the way that African-American men and women are being treated. And in particular, I think it really hurts, you know, because we've already seen this where we see it in the news where this will happen in society. But when it takes place through the police force, these are the people who are who are there to protect. And when they're the ones doing the abusing, I think it has um, a particular sting to it that I uh-huh. think really ignited these protests and has led to people championing for reform in the police system, which I think is absolutely right. And I, and I want to just make a note. I was listening to a show and we could post this on the show notes by two African-American individuals from the United States. And they were arguing, hey, listen, when you look at the records, there is a serious abuse of power in the police force that is also taking place toward non-black people. Hmm. This is a serious issue. Now, they're saying, now, there may be more taking place, you know, if you look at this statistically with African-Americans, but this is a major policing issue that is coming to the front. And so, I kind of see this as a two-pronged issue, Steve. This is a a racism issue, but this is also an abuse of power issue. And I think that, you know, we were talking about the protests, and I think that the way that a lot of people feel was summed up really well by a friend of ours named George Yancey, 
He's a sociologist at Baylor University. And when this all came to the front, I reached out to him and said, you know, because it was interesting, George has just read my book and wrote an endorsement for it and whatnot. And he and I have talked on these issues before with regards to racism. Yeah, and by the way, we had him at our Apologetics Canada conference a number of years ago, and he was the first black person that we were able to secure for the conference. Yeah, and that's actually an interesting point that we should talk about later. Uh, so I, I reached out to him if he wanted to be on the podcast. And it was interesting because he, as he and I dialogued on it, he didn't want to talk about it at first. And in fact, he didn't want to blog about it either. And he eventually did. We can post his blog that he did. But what he said, I thought was just so interesting. And I think really captures how a lot of people feel. He His blog's titled, I'm Tired. And I think there's just so many people that are just incredibly frustrated and tired of what is going on and are asking what has to happen, right? What do we've got to do to see change take place? And I just want to share a quick story, Steve, of my own experience with this. Mm-hmm. Uh, as some of our listeners may know, my sister, Lisa, who lives in Portland, and I'm originally from Portland, live in Canada now. She has adopted two boys from Uganda. She's adopted a number of girls from India. And part of the Human Project, we actually did a story about Matlin, who has cerebral palsy. She's from Calcutta, India. And I was down in Oregon with a film crew, and we went down to a park in Portland to film this scene for the film with Matlin and one of my nephews, Tate, from Uganda. And we're down at this park, and we're doing this filming And as soon as we arrive at this park, this guy comes towards us just spewing out racial slurs to these two kids. And I remember thinking to myself, you've got to be kidding me. And this was a real eye-opening moment for me that I think that a lot of us just don't appreciate is the level of racism that still exists and that sadly the colored community deals with and that these children, this wasn't the, these were just kids, you know? And this wasn't the first time that they had experienced this. And sadly, it wouldn't be the last. Now, the police were called immediately, and the Portland Police Department arrived quickly. And I've got to say, listen, to their credit, they did an incredible job dealing with a very difficult circumstance. And I think one thing we do need to appreciate about what's going on. First of all, we need to appreciate that this sort of racism is completely unacceptable and sadly is taking place and we need to see it stopped. Secondly, I think we need to appreciate that there is reform that needs to come to our policing system, particularly in the United States. I have seen that in Canada, things are different and I want to mention why I think that might be the case. And as well, from my time in the UK, policing is very different there. And I think it's worth talking about Because there is an aggressive level of policing that is systemic within the United States. But I just wanted to say this, Steve, wouldn't you agree, and I think that we need to recognize, that not all police officers are bad? Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Of course. I mean, both you and I have a number of friends who are police officers, and they do a fantastic job. And like those police officers I dealt with in in Portland with that racist situation, they did a great job. And and I can't help but feel for them at some level. I mean, they're dealing with broken people all the time. They're dealing with people hyped up on drugs. They're dealing with people having psychotic breakdowns. They're dealing with a lot of really challenging issues. 
And so I don't want to just say, oh, you know, broad brush, you know, the police system is just completely broken and all these people are horrible and, and racist because that is absolutely not the case. However, there is clearly a need for reform. What do you think about that, Steve? It's interesting that you should mention the difference in policing and, and whatnot. Uh, I'm from Korea, and in Korea, again, policing is different, right? And there, police officers don't carry guns. I mean, Korea just doesn't have guns like we do in the United States and in Canada. And so police officers, they don't need to carry guns. And so that's why I remember watching this one Avengers movie where things are taking place in Seoul, and you, know, you see all of these... Korean police officers come to the scene and they open the doors as a shield and then they all pull out their guns. I'm just like, have they not researched this? They don't carry guns in Korea. But anyway, uh, but what does happen, though, is that this was highlighted where police officers, it's it's a balance, right? On the one hand, you don't want police officers to be too powerful to the point where, you know, they start abusing power because, you know, power corrupts, right? Like you said earlier, it's a power issue. It's a human heart issue. And human heart is so prone to abuse of power. When you have it, you end up abusing it. And that's why in our political systems, we're supposed to have all these checks and balances, right? Where the judicial system has has a certain role, but can't overstep the bounds, you know, that are in the, say, that belong to the legislative branch or so on and so forth. Um, but on the other hand, when the police, they don't have any teeth, so to speak, they get a lot of abuse. So in Korea, police officers, because they don't really have that kind of power like you would see American police officers do, criminals actually really look down on them. And it takes several police officers to take away one person who is like really resisting them, hitting them. That would never fly in the United States, right? So, but I think this is definitely an issue in the United States where because there seems to be this sort of thing just culturally where you place a lot of stock in self-defense. And I think there is something to be said about how police officers who deal with dangerous people day in and day out, yes, they need to be able to protect themselves. And I'm all for that. But I'm also hearing a lot of stories about how, you know, police abuse that same protective power against the people that they're supposed to protect. And we've been seeing this, haven't we, Steve, in the protests. And I think it's important that we mention that this has been going both ways. We've been seeing protesters killing each other and abusing one another and stealing people's property and vandalizing and the like. Again, this is a reminder that we're talking about a human heart issue here. But then we've also seen with police officers the way they've responded, where I've seen, you know, you see videos of them punching people, pushing an elderly white man mm-hmm. down and now Trampling he's in- on him. Yeah, and now he's in serious condition. And so, you're, you're seeing this happening both ways. You know, it is interesting in the UK, they don't uh, carry, for the most part, they don't carry guns either. Okay. Uh, and in Canada, we kind of seem to be a halfway between the UK and the United States. that They do carry guns. However, there's something that's interesting about in, in Canada, A, there seems to be a lot more training that takes place with policing here in Canada. And secondly, police officers are paid very well 
here in Canada. If somebody is a police officer, you don't think, oh man, they're not making very much money. You actually think the opposite. If they're a police officer, you're like, they're making a good wage. Yeah. Um, if our listeners don't remember, I actually uh, tried for Vancouver Police Department years ago. I was going to join them. This was actually just before I met you, Andy. Yeah. Um, the day I came to your second conference was the day that I came home after the interview with the Vancouver Police Department, and they had just rejected me. And I was moping around at home, and Sharina, in her wisdom, kicked my butt out of the couch and dragged me to the conference uh, where J.P. Moreland spoke and all that kind of stuff, and I met you. Things changed from there. But... Um, all that to say, I remember sitting down in the interview and, and I knew going in the kind of, you know, like wage and everything that was supposed to, I mean, you get paid very well. You're right. Right from the get go. And then so just for to the, put it in perspective, I think it's about $70,000 is your starting wage. Yeah. And then it goes up significantly in the first five years or so. And I remember sitting down with, I still remember his name, Detective Sullivan, who was interviewing me. And he said, yeah, you, you do want to pay your police officers well, because when they don't get paid well, they're open to corruption. They're open to bribes, and we don't want to open that door. And isn't there another aspect of this, that when you pay well, you attract quality individuals? Yeah. And I can't help but think that as you see what's going on with Minneapolis, and you see this across the United States, the low pay that they give to police officers, the lack of training in some places, I don't want to say this across the board because I don't think it is, mm-hmm. uh, but you see this low pay, lack of training. It's not going to surprise you that you're not going to attract the quality individuals that you need to do this difficult job and to do it well. And when you get paid well, there is a sense of an enhanced sense of obligation, right? I remember being told, you know, when you get a promotion at your job, that's not always a good thing because say, you know, you're getting paid $40,000 a year and then you get a promotion and now you're getting $60,000 a year. Now you're expected to do $60,000 worth of work and that kind of quality of work. I think there's something to be said there. And one of the reasons I want to bring this up, one of the things that's been coming out in the protests, and if I could just say this, by the way, about the protests, I think there's a lot of us that agree with the protesting because we're tired of this and we want to see change. We, we want to see reform mm-hmm. come. We've had enough. Now, obviously, I disagree with the vandalism and the way that the protesting is being done. I can sympathize with the frustration. However, we live in a democracy for a reason, that we have put in place ways in which you can protest and you know systems in place that you can seek to bring about reform. Mm-hmm. And we need to remember that, that that's how you bring about reform. That's what we fought for so that we have that sort of a system, that you don't need this vandalism, which you're harming the very people that you're seeking to defend in this. So, what we've been seeing, though, come out of these protests is then this idea about getting rid of policing and defunding policing, which is absolute craziness. In fact, I'm going to argue that the exact opposite needs to happen. You need more police officers and they need to be better funded and better trained if we're going to see anything good come out of this. That reminds me of this 
TED Talk done by Gary Haugen, who is the, I, I still don't know his title, either president or CEO of International Justice Mission, which is a nonprofit charity organization that seeks to free people from modern day slavery all around the world. He did a TED Talk in Vancouver a number of years ago where he talked on the hidden reason behind the continued poverty around the world. And he actually pointed out the lack of law enforcement actually perpetuates poverty in many of these places around the world. And as an example, he actually pointed out in modern day West in Canada and in the United States, we take quality law enforcement for granted in a lot of ways. When there is a problem, we dial three numbers, 911, and the average response time is 10 minutes, and we take that for granted. Now, and then he played this clip where this woman calls 911. This is happening in Oregon. Now, the problem is in her county, due to budget cuts, there were some days when the police didn't work. So this guy is coming, trying to bust down her door, who, by the way, uh, has a history of, of abusing her. In fact, two weeks prior to this event, he had already put her in the hospital for physical assault. I'll just play this clip for you and you listen for yourself. I don't have anybody to send out there. Okay. Uh, you know, obviously, if he comes inside the residence and assaults you, can you ask him to go away or do you know if he's intoxicated or anything? I, I've already asked him. I've already told him I was calling you. He's spoken before, but my door assaulted me. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so... Is there any way you can safely leave the residence? No, I can't. Because he's walking pretty much right on the way out. Well, the only thing I can do is give you some advice and call the sheriff's office tomorrow. Um, obviously, if he comes in and unfortunately has a weapon or is trying to cause you physical harm, that's a different story. I, you know, the sheriff's office doesn't work up there. I don't have anybody to send. I think that clip, Steve, helps to make this point so poignantly. Defunding the police. I mean, does anybody want to live in that sort of world? That's the dark ages, man. That's what we came away from. That, and, and it's interesting to me, like, I, you just wonder, like, are people playing this out? Do they not see that that kind of 911 call, like, that's the world that's waiting if you want to move in that direction, mm. defunding the police, getting rid of the police. Clearly that, clearly, that is not the solution. I just want to come back around really quickly to what you were saying earlier about how we have this democratic system. I mean, just to nuance it a little bit more, like I don't want to take away from anything you said. I agree with you there. But I think these protesters, the way they're feeling is that the system is not working because the system is set up to be favorable to those that are already in power. Right. So this is where you can start to see a critical theory Kind of underpinnings, right? So if you're not familiar with the term critical theory, you uh, have come across it. If you've heard phrases like white privilege, oppression, social justice, those kinds of terms should be familiar to you, right? And so what you have is, you know, your proverbial old white men who are actually numerically in the minority, but they're not minoritized because they have power, right? And so this system, this democratic system is built to be favorable 
towards them. I think that's where people feel frustrated because they feel like we have been protesting peacefully and it's not been working. So we're going to use violence. But again, like you pointed out earlier, this is just not it's not helping the cause. And just quickly, a friend of mine posts this on Facebook saying there's no wrong way to protest. I figured out later that he got this from Trevor Noah, who's a comedian. His half white, half black is from South Africa. He's pretty famous for his uh, the late night show, right? And he released a video where he actually says this. Um, There's no wrong way to protest because no matter what you do, the people that you're protesting against who are in power will look at that and say that is wrong, right? So there's no wrong way to protest. Now, the philosopher in me kicks in, right? And I think to myself, well, clearly, if a group of people started raping little children as a form of protest, nobody in their right mind would say that this is not wrong. So what that tells me is, yes, there are wrong ways to protest. And I think I'm seeing some of that unfold now, even if the spirit of the protest is we want justice for the minority communities, especially African-Americans, what is happening right now, there's a lot of rioting, looting going on that's actually damaging the message rather than help it. And in fact, the brother of George Floyd said so. That's the challenge when you go that route, isn't it? I mean, these are historical challenges that we've dealt with. This isn't something new. And this idea of just using power, you start to fall into what we've talked about before on this show of this moral inversion where the ends justify the means. And the problem is, is this will always destroy the ideal. And this is where things always get interesting when you're looking at this because it comes back to that human heart issue where first of all I got to I got to see my own fault in all of this. Where do I need to make change? And I think this is an important aspect. And I do, though, get this idea in the protesting going, okay, again, because I was mentioning this earlier, you know, what do we have to do to see change? Because I think some people, Steve, would, would respond back to us and say, okay, I hear what you're saying. They would say, okay, but what about how the United States had to intervene in World War II with violence to stop Nazi mm-hmm. Germany? Now, I think the key difference here is that in World War II, the United States had an enemy that they attacked to liberate those who were oppressed. But what we're seeing in the case of these riots is this is just complete lawlessness, right? There is no defined target. It is just random whatever you can get your hands on, which, again, like I pointed out earlier, is actually affecting the very people that they were supposed to represent, So, let's put this then in the historical context, and I think you make a great point, Steve. So, this would be Nazi Germany taking over Europe. So, what the United States does is just go into complete anarchy in protest, right? Would you see this as an equivalent? Yeah, I I think so. I mean, certainly there might be other angles that I haven't thought of here, but that seems to be the case with what we're seeing in the States. Just to start wrapping things up, I mean, racism, I think, is just symptomatic of a bigger issue, which is the human heart, like we've been pointing out. Because, I mean, again, I come from Korea, and if you think racism doesn't exist there, you're kidding yourself. So, for example, there is this one Korean singer who is half white and half Korean. Her dad is actually Canadian. He's a white Canadian person. 
so she's got that very distinct Western look, right? She's not your typical Korean kid growing up. She had a very kind of, you know, large eyes and all of that kind of stuff. She was constantly bullied as being a monster because she looked different, uh, because her dad is white or something like that. In fact, somebody in my family told me when I broke up with my girlfriend years ago from Bible school, uh, this whole thing with ring by spring where your money back doesn't always work out. And so I was dating the, this one girl who happened to be white and I broke up with her. And somebody in my family told me this, that you should marry your own kind. Okay. And so if you think racism is just something that is unique to the Western world, you're kidding yourself. It's everywhere. It's the human heart issue, right? It's the us versus them mentality, and that's why I, for one, love being a Christian because the Christian worldview has two ideas that I think levels the playing field, the great equalizers. So one is the idea of every person being made in the image of God. And so no matter your tone of your skin, no matter your religion, no matter your sexual orientation, you are made in the image of God and therefore you have value, the same value as anyone else. So I have no basis to treat you any less of a human being than anyone else. The second equalizer, I think, is Romans 3.23, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, sometimes people push back and say, you know, you can't just expect people to individually be changed and everything will be hunky-dory because we have the system that just perpetuates these things, these evils. And I, I agree with that, but I don't think it has to be either or. For those of us who are in the pro-life movement, we understand this all too well because on the one hand, we try to change the system. We, for example, challenge the current legal status quo. On the other hand, we hit the streets. We talk to people individually. We counsel women who are struggling with crisis pregnancies, you know, and we try to change the individual hearts and minds that way. If you think about it, who put the broken system there in the first place, right? It's broken people with broken hearts who put that broken system there in the first place. So what do you think is going to happen when you just tear down the system, but people's hearts aren't changed, they aren't renewed, they're just going to put another broken system there that's going to oppress somebody else. That's why I think changing individual hearts is actually a necessary condition if it's not a sufficient condition to change the system. And one of my concerns with a movement like this is that we're so focused on the evil out there that we neglect the evil that is in here in our own hearts. And when, when you realize that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God as anyone else, right? That us versus them mentality, at least in theory, should start to break down. And I think that's one of the reasons why I am glad to be a Christian. I have that, what I believe is a very solid foundation to treat everyone equally, regardless of how they look. I absolutely uh, agree with you, Steve. And this is where I get concerned with regards to this issue. And that is, I have studied this and looked into what's going on. You're absolutely right. Racism is a worldwide issue. I think that's why we're seeing protests happening worldwide. But secondly, 
secular culture does not have the resources to solve this issue. And that's really the challenge. As, I, as I've studied this, and as you look at things like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, you know, that, that begins off by stating what we all hold to be true, or most of us, right, that we'll at least pay lip service to, that all humans have inherent dignity, equality, and inalienable rights, we'll say that, but the problem is we don't have any way of actually defending that from a secular point of view. There's no way from secularism to arrive at inherent dignity, meaning that you were born with value. No one gave it to you. Nobody could take it from you. How are you going to defend that from a secular point of view? That all human beings are equal? Man, I mean, this is one of the problems that we're seeing in the scientific community, by the way. If you read articles on this, racism is alive and well in secularism, given that so much of science, particularly evolution, is built off of inequality, right? Survival of the fittest is not about equal. And this idea of inalienable rights or rights that can't be taken from you, again, on secularism, how are you going to arrive there? And agree, I agree with you, Steve. There's a great place, I think, to end off. It's one of the reasons why I'm a Christian. I love being a Christian. And that in Christianity, we do have the resources to deal with this. And I think we have a responsibility to be a light in this world right now, particularly, where we're speaking to this truth. And that I think that we can be a real advocate, as has happened historically, to see racism defeated. Yeah, what a topic, hey? I'm sure there are tons of other angles that we could go down and nuance and whatnot. But listeners, hopefully some of what we said resonated with you and you found it helpful. Thank you for joining us for another edition of the AC Podcast. AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada. And we'll come back next week with more stuff to think about. Until then, ciao.